This podcast is brought to you by Benjamin, a workflow automation engine that allows advisors to focus on their clients rather than data management. Learn more at getbenjamin.com. Today on Bridging the Gap, I had an awesome conversation with Sten Morgan. Sten is a leading voice in the financial services industry and the founder of Legacy Investments. Sten started the conversation opening up about the challenges he faced when starting his firm and what he faced when he pushed against what the industry said needed to be done, something that innovators do and we need more of. We dive into the Goldilocks principle. We talk about the importance of not having a predetermined outcome when speaking to clients and the importance of having a meeting agenda. I know that may sound confusing, but that's why you got to listen. Sten also breaks down some whiteboard tips to help keep your audience engaged. And I did ask, how to get better handwriting on a whiteboard. So you'll have to listen to hear what the answer was. This was an awesome conversation and you'll definitely take some tactical information to help you grow your firm. Sten is the man. Let's jump into this episode of Bridging the Gap with Sten Morgan. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Sten Morgan, Franklin, Tennessee. How you doing, my friend? Good, Matt. Thanks for having me, buddy. Thanks for joining us, man, on Bridging the Gap. We're so honored to have you. I'm, I'm really stoked about this conversation. We're going to have a lot of fun. I'm just, I'm really kind of intrigued by your your journey. You're up in Franklin and your journey on becoming financial manager, advisor, serving individuals, serving advisors, helping them, all while having a family and everything of that nature. I'm always super curious. And you've also written two books, which kudos, I know how that can be. That's a process yeah. uh, end of it, which we're going to dive into but I, I want to. I always like to start these conversations because I like to get to know people from the beginning. The thirteen-year-old Sten, and I always ask people this: Was the thirteen-year-old Sten was this where you wanted to be when you were thirteen, or was it you know you wanted to be like a firefighter or maybe a major league baseball player like me or, or something of that nature? What what was your desire at thirteen? And then I want to get into how did you get to to where you are today? I'd love to know about that entire journey. Uh, that's, that's a great question. I think it's a great question to lead with. I think that's our 13-year-old selves, you know, can tell an interesting story for sure. Interestingly enough, I was into finance and money and the way that presented itself when I was 13 is I collected quarters and it didn't have to be a specific quarter. Like I just rolled quarters. And so if I got five bucks or something, I'd go to the, the car wash and I'd turn it into the machine and get quarters. And so I ended up with like this stockpile of rolled quarters and Ended up turning them in, I think, to buy a dog for my first girlfriend or something silly. But again, from there, it was finance was in me. I think it was in me, unfortunately, for the reason of, you know, my mom was raising four of us pretty much on her own. Money was always an issue. So in my 13-year-old mind, the lack of money causes problems. And if you had money, all those problems would go away. And so at a young age, it was learn how to make enough money to at least pay the bills, go to the grocery store without stressing out. And still to this day, when I go to the grocery store and I don't have to look at prices as much as I used to, like that, that does something for me. My wife's like, I don't want to go to the grocery store. I'm like, I, I'll go because it is a fun experience down to some extent where it used to just be a stressful one. Mm. So, so at 13, it was somehow get in business. I didn't know understand how people made money or what it was like to be in finance. And I didn't know the path, but it was like, for the sake of my mom, sisters, and the future people that are you know, going to look to me, I have to figure out how to solve all these problems I see. So 13-year-old Sten was, was probably into some stuff a little early and thinking too deep, but thank God it worked out. The situation, though, that you were in forced you to, right? So it's like it's all a matter of our surroundings and our situations kind of dictate 
what we do and what we have to do. And you were focused on helping the family, which is, I, I think, incredible and a, a huge kudos on that side. I, you know, I think about collecting quarters. You know, I used to always collect them because I wanted all the states. That's when the quarters came out with the states on the yeah. back. And I was trying to get all the states. I don't know if I ever got them all. But the other thing that reminds me of, if you're talking about how you go to the grocery store now and you don't, you're not paying attention to the prices as much, it reminds me of a Tim Ferriss article, which is it's hard to change that mindset. Tim Ferriss was talking about how, you know, when he was growing up, he, you know, he was using this toilet paper example. And he was like, I use single ply toilet paper when I was growing up. And he's an uber successful author, thought leader, etc. And he's like, I was still buying single ply toilet paper when I was older. He's like, it's hard to change your mindset to he's like, I didn't have to. Uh, but he's like, why am I still using this toilet paper that sucks? And he's like, I need it. I mean, I don't have to. And it's just, you're wired that way, which is, is, is so interesting to hear it from another perspective. I haven't thought about that article until you started talking, but how were you, I'm interested. I want to go down this path for a second. And then, then I want to talk about, about legacy investment planning is how did you rewire yourself? Because that's hard. You were spending your whole life watching what the price of everything was. And now you feel a little bit more comfortable not doing that. How did you go through that process just mentally to get to that point for those that may or still be struggling on that side? Yeah, I talk, I talk a lot about when I speak to groups, that Sten's path was not calculated. It wasn't, man, he was just a visionary from the beginning and it somehow worked out. It was, you know, I was sometimes, I was forced to make hard decisions that I think if, if I had my way, I would have continued to, to grow a little bit, but stay comfortable. Because when you're young and your whole your goal in life is comfort because you're so uncomfortable all the time, you can hit that and then just stop. And it took me realizing that there, were, there was a certain level of discomfort I had to learn to sit in and actually pursue if I wanted to help my sister and my mom and have a different life. And so it was probably about freshman year of college that the tension I was living in of do, do just enough to, to stand out in basketball or school or business, but don't go so far that you could risk it all. That something switched early in college of like, I stand, I think you're capable of more because when you're young and nobody around you is successful, you're like, this is just who we are. You know, there's people I see that are, that are doing something different than we are. But for us, my pinnacle, you know, hundred thousand dollars a year is what stuck in my mind when I was little. Somehow somebody said that and it seemed like a big number and that, that's not changing people's lives necessarily. It would pay for my family. We'd be comfortable. But as soon as I was able to break out of a small way of thinking of, I just want to survive versus what well, I think there's a way to survive, but also have impact, not just look in my bubble, but actually look outwards. And that happened in college where I was able to kind of start shaking that, but it, but it resisted. I mean, those, those thoughts or, you know, the mindsets, the first book I wrote seven mindsets of success was really to answer this question of people in the industry saying, Hey, I'm 20 years older than you, but how are you doing it? It, it just, it doesn't make sense the way you approach things. And, it wasn't because I came from money. And I've also heard people say, if you, you need to go through something hard, because that makes people more successful. And I argue, yeah, but if it's too hard, it, it debilitates you. So there's this like Goldilocks principle of it needs to not be so hard that you check out, but it can't be so easy that you don't understand the, the work required to get there. And so for me, it was a process, mm-hmm. you know, different influences kind of rubbing and me realizing like, man, I got to learn to sit in the thing that I've been avoiding so long, which is like risk and discomfort. And as soon as some of those things started hitting, it just started reinforcing that new mindset. Because a mindset is, is, is a railroad track in your mind. It's not a line in the sand that can fade. It is, it is entrenched and you have to just dig it up. Mm. I want to I touch on that for a second. I want to come back to those mindsets, the seven mindsets of success. What you really need to do to achieve rapid top level success is the book. 
I want to come back to those mindsets and I'm going to, I'm going to quiz you on, on saying them out loud and, and talking through them. So let's see if you remember everything you wrote in the book. Let's, we're going to read right. the whole book and, and you can't <laughs> cheat, right? You can't pull the book out. But tell us now. So, so 13 year old Stan was forced into a situation where you wanted to help, you know, provide for your family and you're doing everything possible to make ends meet and get through. And you had this mentality from that standpoint of you're going to do whatever you need to. Now, tell us, you you went to college, your mindset opened up. Now, tell us about legacy investment planning, how you came to starting this firm and what you wanted to do to be unique for your clients and for the industry and the impact you wanted to make. I'm curious on how you got to that point in the journey that you went through to get there. Yeah, again, I was always looking for the, the effective path that wasn't too risky. And so I, I got a job out of college with somebody I knew at Raymond James, kind of worked with them as a you know junior advisor for two years until it reached this point where there was something in me that was like, I don't know if I want to sell a share mutual funds and have 2000 clients at the time it was rough, but my partner, you know, kind of just sent me packing. You know, I was a 22 year old kid kind of asking questions. Hey, is this the right way to do it? I don't know if I want to be here hoping this mentor was going to say, Hey, let me, let me explain the world to you and let me walk you through this and, Instead, I had a box and walking out four hours later, getting lawsuit threats in the mail. And I'm like just spinning. So it wasn't Sten with this strategy. I was forced into like, okay, I'm unemployed, getting married in two months, just bought my first house. And so I just went out on my own, found this other small broker dealer that paid me some money to show up and, and transition. And I kept my head down for a couple of years and it was an insurance broker dealer based. And I realized I'm just not into selling insurance to everybody I meet. So again, I didn't fit the mold there. And, I, and I'm by nature a challenger. If somebody wants me to come in and just sell the same thing to everybody, I've learned I'm not, eventually they're going to get pretty annoyed with me. And so my hand was forced to finally step out independently and say, okay, I need to build a firm that, that matches my personality and really matches the kind of advisor I would want to work with as a client. Like I'd sniff out pretty quick if somebody was trying to sell me the same thing every time we met or never called me back. And and so that's what legacy became was you know, an independent planning focused practice. And I had to early on in, in this business reject what the industry was telling me because the industry says, just start, sell stuff to your family. The products on the shelf are really what's valuable. You don't really know anything. And if you keep your head down for 10 to 15 years, eventually you'll make a good living. I don't have that time. And so I had to learn to realize like if the industry is saying I should go this way, I'm going to go this way. And a lot of our teachings, it's that it's kind of reject the average path. And I don't think there's like a one-year path in this business. Uh, I think there's a three-year path. It doesn't have to be 10 to 15, but it's going to be hard. And so a lot of the stuff we build content-wise now is more of what is this path for an advisor? It's an aggressive elite path, but it doesn't have to be the same old industry path that they've probably unintentionally been preaching for a long time. I think it's interesting, right? I, I, one of the values that we have within many of our firms is challenge everything. Challenge the status quo. Just because it's been this way doesn't mean it has to be that way, right? We, we, we've got to be better at that. We all just accept the way that it is. And we think that that's the way that it needs to be. But there's always better ideas that can be made with advancements in knowledge and technology. I'm curious, what are some of the challenges that you faced when you got onto your own? We, we have a lot of people that listen to the podcast that are thinking of starting their own firm, maybe in the midst of starting their own firm. And it's always nice, right? It's like, oh, the grass is always greener on the other side, but there's a challenge and there's a lot of challenges. I'm curious, you know, what are some of those major challenges you faced 
hanging your own shingle, getting your own firm going, and you know at the same time pushing against what the industry says is needs to be done. I'm curious on how you what those challenges were and how you overcame them. I think people was probably one of the biggest challenges for me. Great book called Who Not How. Yeah, the fact that Sten does not need to be the one to solve every problem. And I was the person back in the day that in class, you'd want me on, on the team, not because I want to get a good grade, but I felt like the result of that project reflected on me as a person. You know, that's the Carol Dweck fixed mindset. If you give me feedback, you're calling into question my identity. That's mm-hmm. how I behaved when I was young. And so I wanted to succeed just because of that. And so when it came to building a team and being a personality, a leader, a team member that, that attracted people to a culture, that the persona I had built, and this is through a lot of counseling and different things over the years of the, the things that I developed from the situation when I was young that allowed me to be successful in business, there's always two edges to that sword. And it made me hard to be friends with, hard to, you know, definitely hard to be married to. And so I've had to unpack a lot of that to say, hey, great, I've come here, but now how do I dole some of these edges that have success at all costs, go for it. And so for me, being able to, to lead a team well, motivate a team well, that, that there's so much to building a team. And, and, and I feel like to be an elite advisor, we, we say you have to have an elite team. It's not a, a great advisor and three people that show up and just wait to be told what to do. And so the amount of time I've had to spend over the years trying to level up my team, that's been a, a big learning curve for me. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, the biggest challenge. And, you know, you mentioned a lot of points, right? Carol Dweck's Mindset is an amazing book. I, I think that that's something that everybody should read because I think we grow up in a culture today where we're we're bound to be fixed mindset. And if we don't identify and understand it, then it makes things challenging because then it makes us defensive and it causes maybe some of the polarization potentially that we see in the country these world, these days as well. But you in your book mentioned some of the mindsets that are needed for success. And I'm curious to go down what some of those seven mindsets are for success that you wrote about in your book. And, and as I mentioned earlier, I don't want you to cheat on these. So you know, what are maybe like the top few mindsets that you had? And, and, and I'm curious of how you came to these, right? Was this from the unpacking of your own situation and you were able to learn that to help figure that out? Was it research? But I'd also like to know what some of those mindsets are that you have identified that are necessary for people to be successful. Yeah, a great question. And then they're meaty. So I'd say when I get in front of a group that the two that make people the most uncomfortable are discomfort and perspective. And discomfort's an obvious one. We help people set discomfort goals, which that is you need to train yourself and teach your brain that when I feel this, it's actually a good thing that, you know, the fixed versus growth mindset that like failing's okay. Like it doesn't reflect on my identity. It just means I'm closer to succeeding. And so personally for me, discomfort learning, not, and there was a progression. So I played college basketball. I was probably one of the most uncoachable players. Um, if coach corrected me, I'd, you know, I'd say whatever and in front of the team and I'd get benched, I'd get technicals all the time. Like I was just outside of the court. I was a different person, but you put me on a, on a court where I was being challenged and there was figures of authority that I was feeling were kind of impacting my life. I, I was rejecting that situation. So for me, step one of discomfort um, was just being able to sit in it and not reject it. And then it was also to pursue it. And so now I'm up, whether it's writing books, whether it's going on retreats to learn how to be a better leader, it's like, am I constantly keeping myself in this growth state, but not to taking that to too far, meaning, you know, like a tree is, I'm going to get this stat a little bit wrong, but I think grows like four months out of the year. And then it spends the rest of the year absorbing that growth. There's a season to grow and be challenged. And there's a season to let that growth settle. 
And so those are the things I'm still learning about discomfort. It's not pedal to the metal all the time because you're, you're missing lessons along the way, but there are seasons of, you know, being challenged and there's seasons of, okay, what am I, how am I going to apply this? Like, what do I do with the lessons I've learned versus moving on to the next lesson? I, I want to stop there. I love that. Um, I, I the season to grow and be challenged and the time to let settle. And and I and it's like this perspective that you have of everybody else. You look at everybody else. You're like, gosh, you know, for Mark Cuban to get to where he is, or Mark Zuckerberg, or Steve Jobs, or any of these people, gosh, they must have had to work twenty four seven all the time and just boom, 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 pedal to the metal. And it's that's so wrong. That's like completely backwards of it. And you know, you think about like workout regimens, if you go and work out and you're just pounding the same muscles over and over without any rest, because you think that rest is for the weary and you can't ever rest, you actually start to have this plateau effect where it starts to go down. And that's the same thing that you're saying about growth, grow and then sit in that growth and you're going to learn something and then go grow again. It's not like constant pounding of it. And you know, you mentioned something earlier about you grew to the point where you said, you mentioned the book, Who Not How, and that it's a matter of helping to grow your team. And speaking of discomfort and also your team, I think one of the biggest challenges that advisors have is that we're control freaks, right? Advisories are, are control freaks. Like it, it's got to be done this way because the client is important and we don't want it to be, we know how to deal with clients and putting it in someone else's hands is exposing our prize jewel, which is our client. I mean, talk about discomfort. You have to find, if, for you to grow and be you know, an amazing advisor, you have to let go of that. How have you helped or seen other advisors or help other people overcome that? Or how did you overcome that from that standpoint? Because that's, that's hard. That's hard. Easy, easy to talk about, hard to act on. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo that that's probably one of the biggest issues I see in the industry is not unmotivated advisors. We're all entrepreneurs to some extent. It's the ability to run a healthy business and, and, and lead people well. Gitmo is a term we use, good enough to move on, that if perfection is our goal, like we're, we're hurting everybody. And if at the end of the day, our, our main focus is to impact clients, anything that's getting in the way of that is a problem. Meaning even if we're overanalyzing our internal workflows too much, Gitmo, if it's good enough to move on, we need to move on to the next thing because we're, we're almost staying in a safe place of busy work without actually leaning into something new to actually help clients. Like that should be what our KPIs are. Traction's a great book. It's like, you can have a great culture with accountability if you clearly set out KPIs and expectations and then they meet it or they don't and you talk about it. For me, it was one, a kind of a heart thing. Like how, how does STEM become more approachable and truly care about this person's development over just results for myself? And then it's okay. There actually needs to be a structure around this. So I'm not making it up as I go, but though we spend a lot of time teaching advisors on that, because if it is you by yourself or you and one staff, that's kind of half engaged, you will not reach we, we say there's five stages to an advisor's journey. You don't get to three, four, and five unless you have a team and you're focused on there's only two or three things that Matt can do, only Matt, and everything else he needs to get rid of. And every time he hires somebody, he frees up 60% of his time. Like those kind of principles we're having huge success with because the industry, again, just says, hey, go, good luck. And how much money you make is the measure of how well you're doing. And I've seen advisors making a bunch of money that have terrible practices that are not doing great by clients. We think there's a, a better path. And our hope is someday we lay out a path that advisors say, I'm going to follow that. And if I follow it and stick to it, I'm going to get where I want to go. 
you touch on so much that is just needed in the industry and the training. And if you think about it, it's not training of skills. Like we're all skillful in financial analysis, investments, and and, and even some, most of the time sales. But it's mainly, tra- it's the training of the mind, and which is what we're in the business of doing for our clients. We need to help them mentally overcome their barriers towards their financial goals. And you, you've talked about in the past, you know, identifying your superpower as an advisor. And one of the things that you mentioned is that you know you need to build a team around you to maximize that superpower. But how do you go about identifying your superpower? Because you're like, hey, Matt, you should be just doing two or three things. And I'm like, all right, let me think about the two or three things. <laughs> yeah, what are those? How, how can you help me or another person or how can an advisor walk through their mental state of saying, these are the things that I need to be doing and that's it. Someone else needs to be doing everything else. Yep. I, I, love, I can't remember. I, this randomly came up when I was speaking at a conference once I said superpower and it was fascinating to see advisors reactions because that's we don't think of ourselves that way, you know, and we don't use that term a lot. But it stuck with me in that if you want average results, just be average, meaning most advisors are running a good practice. They have some level of training and they're hoping to bump into a client that needs something at that moment. They're not looking to outcompete other advisors that are more skillful. It's like, hopefully I run into somebody at the right time when they're willing to say yes and they buy something I have to offer. And if I do that enough times, I'll make enough money and someday it'll work. When I was 24 and started Legacy, I was like, I didn't. I had to have a high batting average. When I got a plate appearance, I had to close it. So that's where I went more of the technical path, meaning if I could save somebody 40 grand in taxes with an idea, I bet they become a client. But if I meet with them and say, hey, I'm Sten, here's my firm. I sell this stuff. I'm, I'm trustworthy. I know what I'm doing. Again, the same thing every other advisor is saying. I, I didn't see that being a very successful path, at least in the time frame I wanted it to be. So when I challenge advisors to say, what is your superpower? Like you have to be better than at something than most advisors to have the elite level path that we talk about. And so, for example, mine is meetings. So when I hold a meeting with a client and I use the whiteboard and I share ideas, great book called Getting Naked, Patrick Lencioni about why, why do we hold back our best ideas? Do we think it's all we have? Uh, commit your financial life to me or sign up, and then I'll tell you why you should work with me. And our, what I teach our advisors is in that first meeting, you're going to add so much value. They're going to say, I've never had a meeting like that before. If he did that in 45 minutes and he says, can we meet again? Of course, I'm going to say yes. And so that's something we've developed. Rainmaking can be a superpower. There's some people that are just really good. Like people just gravitate to them. COI processes, how you work with attorneys and CPAs can be a superpower. Motivation, team development. I'm just a great leader and I I attract really technical advisors to me and that's a great team. So there has to be something that you look at and say, whether I'm naturally gifted toward it or I've just built it, I'm really, really good at this thing. Because every elite advisor we've interviewed or talked to has something like that. I love that. And I love that you've identified yours as meetings. I want to dig into that for a second and whiteboarding. I love whiteboarding. And I don't know if I'm good at it. My handwriting on the whiteboard is terrible. So maybe you can help me with that as well. Um, so talk to me about meeting skills, right? What what makes an effective meeting? Why can you run an effective meeting in 45 minutes and advisor down the street, they have to have an hour and a half meeting? Like, well, how do you run an effective meeting, which we don't put too much time into because we, th- we think it's about the content as opposed to the meeting structure and the meeting organized and how, you know, what you just talked about, like being prepared. So you talk about seven meeting skills. Maybe give us a couple of those that make for great meetings. You bet. Yeah. And this is another great example of what the industry teaches you to do. Hey, here's my firm. Here's We've been around for 100 years. You know, we're working for one of the big ones. And, and then you'd come in with an illustration. When I was at Raymond James, we would go into our first meeting with an American Funds illustration already. 
because I couldn't do I couldn't do a sell a financial plan. I couldn't sell insurance. I was like, I have this, and my hope is, is by the end of this meeting, I figure out a way for this to fit, and then I'm going to do it with two thousand more people, and I'll have a practice. And so one of the biggest ones for me that I had to break was do not have a predetermined outcome. When you go into a meeting, you're vetting them just as much as they're vetting you. The cost of taking on a wrong client is a hundred X what you could ever imagine it could be. And, and so realizing that I'm going in here to see, is this going to be a win for me and my team? That, that's a huge mindset shift because really it's like, they're in my office. I'm going to close them. I'm going to find a way to make revenue somehow. And then I'm going to do it again. That's the way I was originally taught. And I had to change that. Another big important one is look for opportunities to stand up. And this is kind of around the whiteboarding is an hour long meeting, sitting down with somebody, the energy just slowly falls and it's going to get harder and harder. And if you spend the first 15 minutes talking about yourself or your firm or random things they've already heard from somebody else, you've lost half the energy probably by the time you get to something you really want them to pay attention to. So I probably spend 30 to 40% of my meetings up at the whiteboard, even if that means I'm summarizing what we're talking about. And then if I get to an idea, and this is where I initially I had to preload these into my fact finder just to think about it. If I want to pause and teach them about tax loss harvesting, or the difference between a direct and non-direct recognition asset and why that's valuable in real estate. Like these are things they maybe heard before their CPA mentioned, but I would be, probably be the first one to ever teach them about it. And they're like, oh, I never heard of that before. That's great. And so most of the time I'm sharing two or three ideas in the very first meeting that they say, I've never heard of that before. Mm-hmm. I don't know yet if it's going to be a useful strategy for them yet, but I'm, I'm educating. Like I want them to think of me as a coach, a teacher. And if I'm sitting in a chair, I don't get that vibe off. If I'm up at a whiteboard with some energy, that's a game changer. So, so, so if somebody was listening to this podcast and saying, what's the one thing I'd say, use a whiteboard, even if it means you're summarizing the points and staying organized, but, but find a way to stand up in the room. So I, I think that there's a lot of people that feel going back to one of those mindsets, discomfort with that discomfort with the uncertainty of where the meeting's going and being able to think on your feet. And yeah. so, you know, when you go into that, you go in without a predetermined goal, right? Yeah. You do want them to be a client, but that's only if they're the right fit etc. But how do you handle the the ebbs and the flows? I mean, you, you have a pre-meeting questionnaire, it sounded like that you get from clients. So you have a little bit of insight on them. And you have an idea of maybe where the meeting could go. But how do you really kind of roll with the punches, so to say, in the meeting to make it to where you're not sitting there be like, ah, well, let me just get back to you. Let's have another meeting. I'll get back to you. Can you walk through some of those? How you go? How you handle that? Yeah, you have to leave a, an impression in the first meeting. If it literally, if it feels like the same thing they felt before, again, unless you're hoping you're meeting this great client that's never met with an advisor before, I mean, you're you're really just hoping it works out. Unless you tilt the odds in your favor. So another one of the strategies is don't be a yellow pad advisor. Like, don't go in saying, "Hey, let's just see where the wind takes us." You need to take control of a room, and so that's why we always have an agenda or or a fact finder because it, it gives us flow. And what I do is I know in my fact finder that I've essentially inserted ideas. I want to teach them if nothing else comes up. A quick one is the three buckets. Hey, did you know that when you're talking about investments, there's only three ways you can invest money from a tax perspective, Roth, deferred, qualified money, and non-qualified money. And then I show them what's in each one. And where do you think all your money is? So all of a sudden that's a five minute teaching point that, that leads to something. Hey, someday it looks like all your money is in tax deferred. That's not a bad thing. A lot of people are that way, but we're trying to build this Roth bucket because it gives us flexibility in the future. If you have a Roth account, we can actually manipulate your tax bracket in retirement. Oh, that's great. No one's ever told me about a Roth or, oh, I make too much money in front of Roth. 
Well, hey, that's a great point. So have you heard of a Roth conversion or a backdoor Roth? Hey, did you know your Roth 401k doesn't have income limits to fund it? So all of a sudden, it, it early on, it will feel like I've never done it before. So so just plant some some softballs for yourself in the meeting. But questions will lead to questions. And once you start having meetings in this style, and again, we have a lot of teaching around how to do it because it is it is harder than it sounds to start. But if you're not having a client once a week, at least say, that's one of the best meetings I've ever had, then you just need to keep workshopping it. Mm-hmm. Now talk to us real quick, and then I want to I let you get back to doing what you do so well and serving clients and other advisors is talk to me about the whiteboarding. So I, I can see people getting up on a whiteboard. I, I, I see it in our office, like a huge whiteboard, and it just becomes a, a colossal mess. It's just like <laughs> right. we're writing all over the place. I mean, is there a strategy of how to utilize the whiteboard? And I understand the pro of it. I love that. I think that that like, makes a different energy and vibe. But what's the strategy of using a whiteboard in, in an effective way where it doesn't just come off as like you're trying something that just doesn't, it, it, you miss the mark yeah. on that? Yeah, I, th- I think we tell advisors don't be scared to practice. And so one of the things we've given to a lot of advisors is videos of me whiteboarding an idea. And then it's like, okay, now go do that 20 times on your own. Because I have a portion of the whiteboard at times that is me summarizing key points that I want to stay there. And then a big portion of it is ideas I'm sharing and erasing and moving on to the next one. Because I'm not promising anything. And another one of our meeting tips is don't overpromise. Don't say, oh, man, I'm going to change everything. Like, this will be great. Because if you set expectations, hey, this is going to be really easy. Say you're selling an insurance policy. You're like, oh, this is no problem. And underwriting takes four months. They're frustrated the whole time because you didn't set good expectations. You overpromised or made it seem too easy up front. And so we, we use part of the whiteboard for these illustrations, you know, tax harvesting. Here's a quick graph because they don't need to be complicated. You need to give them that 30,000 foot like, oh, it makes sense. The concept, not that uh, we just went so far into the weeds that you've just proved to me you're smart and I feel dumb. And I'm not going to ask you a question because I don't even know what you're talking about. So I, I think reps will get there. But take permission to, to use part of your whiteboard just to organize key ideas or, or key points that come up during the meeting. And then use the other portion as kind of the doodle part. Like, hey, here's an idea. You should never try to convey an idea through an illustration of numbers in front of them or just talking to them. Because when you're talking, it makes sense to you because it's your idea. But there's a good chance it's it's going nowhere with them. Mm. That's so true. And, and so I, I just hear some advisors listening to this and being like, well, my clients love having a take home, something to take away from the meeting. That's why I use paper. You know, if you're erasing everything, they can't see it again how do they so how do you overcome that i mean do you have that on follow-up or or is you just like hey you know what i just they visualized it they heard it which is the two combinations of learning they're going to be good how, how do you help overcome the clients that want something to take home with them so i've never had a client ask me stand that that thing you drew i really need that or i wanted to drop myself it made the impression i needed to in the moment in a first meeting i'm not going to send them home with a binder of stuff the first meeting is hey here's who we are here's what we do are we a good fit? Does our structure seem like it fits? Here's a couple nuggets just based on what you shared with us. That whether And I use this line all the time. Whether you work with me or somebody else. Because again, that initially that puts them on like, I'm. this is a good idea regardless of if you do it with me or not. And I'm not really desperate to work with you. And so the clients are like, and they'll usually say sometimes like, no, 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 we definitely want to work with you. But I'm like, oh, whether you do or you don't, I would still do this idea. And so I think there's things like that that, that were kind of head trash for me in the past. Like, oh, my handwriting's not good enough, so they're not going to understand it. The, 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 the meaning, the point still landed with them, though, as I got better with that. Or they need the deliverable or the illustration. Well, the illustration probably means something to you, but it doesn't mean anything to them. 
And so I think it's almost challenging every advisor listening to think about your meetings. And is it a meeting that you would like or is it a meeting that your clients would actually like? Most advisors' meetings, they think they're cool, but the client doesn't. So that that's I think just in general, right? You think about I've had some a lot of people on the marketing side. Everybody wants to write about things that they think that the clients want, but they realize that it's not even close to what their clients want to hear about. So uh, I can I can respect that. I mean, Sen, we could talk for hours. I'm really intrigued by your perspective. I think that it's a breath of fresh air, man. It's like it's awesome, and I'm super stoked for everything that you've got going on and. Uh, continuing to follow you. But before I let you go, I've got to do, I've got to ask my two questions that I ask all guests. And the first one, and you've already kind of mentioned a good number of them, but I'm going to ask you to share another one if you could. That's not yeah. your own book, but I love to learn. That's what I, these conversations are more important to help other people learn, but also to help me learn. And I like to learn by reading books from people that are smarter than me. And so I always ask all my guests, what's a great book out there that you think everybody should be reading? So the one that I just finished, Business Made Simple, actually took my team through part of that with me. Great book, because as advisors, we need to know how business owners think. It's, it's kind of how we think, but it's also good for team members to know how business owners think, to be a value-driven professional, meaning my job is not to just do enough to not get fired, but actually to add value to the organization. Great book. And the one I just got that I haven't started yet is called The Last Safe Investment, which a lot of what we talk about is advisors investing in themselves. I've told advisors, been in front of a group before saying, if you were not producing this amount in your practice and you were funding a Roth IRA, a 401k, a SEP IRA, or anything else, stop doing it. Stop funding retirement, which for advisors is a little backwards, but put all that money into your practice. Sometimes I'll spend a thousand bucks in my practice and make 10 grand off of it. Now that looks pretty good compared to a 12% mutual fund. And so I think the idea of investing heavily in yourself is huge. I love that. And then you you kind of mentioned it earlier, but I always ask, and this came from Barron's conference, they asked all their panelists on their panels, what's one piece of actual advice you think that our listeners should take away from our conversation today? This one's a little deep. Hopefully we've shared enough kind of practical ideas, but this was big for me. I went on a seven-day intensive in Scottsdale, kind of counseling, just kind of really a executive level, just kind of tear you up and challenge you, again, discomfort goal to the max. And a big takeaway for my personality was you can serve the world without trying to save it. And for me, that was huge because like, I can work hard and have an impact, but the weight I was carrying since I was 13, if I, if I misstep, the world is going to fall apart, which just isn't true. Even for a client, there are many great advisors out there that if my client never met me, they would still be okay. And so I remind myself, it's like I can serve the world because I want to have a huge impact, but it's not my job to save it. And those are two different things. Gosh, that's incredible. That's incredible, man. I love that. Well, man, I can't wait to continue to stay in touch and help out in any way I can, but I want to continue to follow all of your success. And I'm sure that our listeners are going to want to do the same because I know that it resonated with a lot of them. So what's the best way for our listeners to stay in touch with you, continue to follow you, get ideas from you, all of that? How can they do that? So eadvisornetwork.com, Elite Advisor Network. Uh, So the letter E and then advisornetwork.com. That's where we put up a lot of content. Yeah, get on our newsletter. We're kicking out content online. So I appreciate all you do too. It's like, again, we got to shake some stuff up that people are kind of you know, on cruise control in our industry. And it's, uh, it's time for something different. I love it. Well, I can't wait to continue to watch your success. Go check out that eadvisornetwork.com. And thanks so much for taking time to, to be with us here on Bridging the Gap. Really, really appreciate it. Stay well, all right? Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 